had a dream about this place. to ghost stories for the end of the world. The purpose of the opening part of tonight's episode is to get a feel for how oil firms and intelligence agencies and freelance underworld operatives collaborate to achieve shared strategic objectives. And the back half of this one uh, will be more about how those same forces are conspiring i say conspiring to neutralize threats in an attempt to future proof their endeavors today so we are continuing to follow the threads that we started to pull on last episode and that means that we're going to focus in particular on bp tonight but we're also going deeper on azerbaijan to understand why someone of prince andrew's stature I use that term loosely, of course, to understand why he was perhaps assigned to manage the Aliyev family account on behalf of the the British state. Now, I say British state instead of BP for a reason, and in time, all will be revealed to you. But the first thing to know is that oil firms are adept at identifying and capitalizing on regions that are extremely unstable and incredibly resource rich at the same time. So Azerbaijan in the late 80s and the early 90s fit that criteria perfectly. And you are about to hear a hundred names horribly mangled. No offense intended. So some stats, the deep water oil fields under the Caspian Sea and Azerbaijan's borders with Russia, Georgia, Armenia, and Iran give it huge geostrategic value. Um, It produces just under 875,000 barrels of oil a day from a reserve of 7 billion. And through the Azerbaijan International Operating Company Consortium, 11 oil firms representing six countries, um, America, Britain, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Russia, and Norway, they all have a major stake in the country. And Baku's oil wealth, you know, its its state oil fund is said to have reserves of 35 billion. And this has enabled it to buy friends in powerful places all around the world. And while being close with the UK and the US, it's also allied to the EU. And with NATO, through the um, Individual Action Partnership Plan, um, it has a very complex relationship with Russia, which is helpful for the West, of course. And in this relationship, both Russia and Azerbaijan, they kind of cycle through degrees of closeness and cooperation. 
Um, sometimes they're at loggerheads, sometimes not. Uh, it's also the largest supplier of energy to Israel, is Azerbaijan. And in return, Israel has supported Azerbaijan throughout its conflict with Armenia. And it supplies as much as 70% of Azerbaijan's weaponry. Uh, the Israelis, they've also been granted access to establish a presence on Azeri uh, Air Force bases. And the two countries have previously collaborated as well on anti-Iranian military strategies, you know, like planning airstrikes, that kind of thing. Uh, the Israelis even built a buffalo farm uh, for Azerbaijan as a, a diplomatic gift, you know. Turkey is also an extremely close and important ally. Uh, Heder Aliyev, who is the former president of Azerbaijan and the, the father of the current leader, Ilham Aliyev. Uh, he was known to describe Turkey and Azerbaijan as being one nation in two states, although the relationship has occasionally been fraught, as we will see tonight. Now, as I record this, Israel and Turkey are both lending uh, political and logistical support for Azerbaijan's blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh, which, you know, has helped to deny food and medical aid to the Armenians living there. Um, and with the huge amount of money the Aliyev family has made off Azerbaijan's energy reserves and this mafia-style patronage system, and cult of personality that they've built around them. Uh, they've shored up their power base domestically while cracking down hard on dissent and laundering tens of millions through the city of London into offshore accounts. Now, Azerbaijan declared independence from the USSR in August of 1991. And after years of instability and growing disillusion with the Soviet project, you know, now, I dare not get into the details of the first Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, just for fear that we will never actually get to the point of this episode. But it is important for us to understand that the tit-for-tat violence and the pogroms that kicked off in the region between Azerbaijan and Armenia in 1988 inflamed tensions between both sides and Moscow. And once the USSR was finally dead in 1991, Russia threw its support behind Armenia and Azerbaijan gradually conceded more and more territory in the war while growing closer and closer to the West, you know. Now, Azerbaijan went to war against Armenia again in 2020, and there's every indication the frozen conflict is probably going to heat up again uh, pretty soon. Now, I don't want to overburden you with more names than is strictly necessary to get the job done here. But the first Nagorno-Karabakh war caused fucking chaos inside Azerbaijan, as you might imagine. Um, tensions between the central government in Baku and the regions almost triggered a civil war on a couple of occasions. We'll discuss one of them a little bit later. And then off the back of this, um, Ayaz Mutalibov, had come to power in 1990 and he oversaw the public vote to adopt the Declaration of Independence in December of 1991, which made him the last Soviet leader of Azerbaijan and the first president of the post-Soviet Republic. Um, he was widely seen as very weak, very ineffective leader who, you know, couldn't get a handle on the war, couldn't get a handle on the economic turmoil inside Azerbaijan or the 
political instability of the country. And then on top of this, he was also seen by some elements as far too close to the old Soviet regime and his loyalty to the cause of um, Azerbaijani independence was questioned, even though he oversaw that vote. Now, capitalizing on this growing distance between Azerbaijan and Russia were these agents of Western capital. And just like they did everywhere else where the USSR was falling apart, they poured into Baku to make deals with the new government and prize it fully away from Russian influence, you know. So you had spies, gangsters, diplomats, corporate executives, all of them partying into the the wee hours of the morning while they negotiated how to carve the nation's energy resources up between them all. And to understand the kind of the outlaw Wild West atmosphere of the country in the early 90s, I recommend um, Azerbaijan Diary, uh, a rogue reporter's adventures in an oil-rich war-torn post-Soviet republic by Thomas Galtz. Now, Galtz is uh, sus suspect as hell. He was a big fan of Haydar Aliyev, and he was known to downplay Azerbaijani uh, atrocities against Armenians and emphasize Armenian atrocities against Azerbaijanis or Azeris. But for all that, you know, the book is still successful in evoking the feeling of the time and place, I would say. Galtz mentions three names that will be very familiar to listeners of this show. Uh, if they've heard the Octopus and the Casino series, which is uh, Richard Seacott, Heine Aderholt, and Ed Dearborn. Now, with the Poppy Bush administration declaring its intention to help build an oil pipeline from Azerbaijan to Turkey, these three guys arrived in Baku in 1991 as representatives of this newly formed oil company called Mega Oil. And all three of them were United States Air Force, and they were veterans of the secret war in Laos. Uh, they were also known to be deployed to support certain CIA operations from time to time, you know, given their uh, professional experience and professional connections. And additionally, they had offered logistical support to Oliver North when he was establishing that maze of offshore accounts and front companies that would finance the enterprise and the Iran-Contra operation and linking all three and this is a guy that we didn't have space to get into in the octopus but the connecting piece the middleman if you will um here was this operative cum con artist called gary best and he's supposed to have dreamed up the idea of mega oil in the first place and made the approach to the azeri government and he was instrumental in finding financing and logistical support for the venture Gary Best is, or was, possibly, a very mysterious guy. Uh, he was connected in some capacity to the CIA. Everybody who knew him uh, believes that much. And he played a role as a bagman in Iran-Contra, as well as this deal in Azerbaijan. But beyond that, nobody really knows much about him, or if he's even still alive. I've really tried to actually nail this down, if he is still alive, but nobody even seems to know where he is now. Uh, he's one of those operatives who move from job to job and place to place and they endlessly set up businesses that never turn a profit and always turn out somehow to be connected to 
intelligence agencies, you know, like the CIA. So to secure oil drilling rights in Azerbaijan, Best and the other three flew to Baku, and they paid tens of thousands to government officials in bribes. Uh, it has never been fully established where the money came from for this either, just like it was never explained where they got access to the thousands of dollars worth of medical equipment that they would donate free of charge to the Azeri troops on the front in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And just like it was never explained where they got the tens of thousands that they used to sponsor the local Baku Theatre Company's tour of the USA. And nor was it ever fully explained how mega oil was so quick to obtain government sanction to tap so many of these broken down old Soviet wells while Exxon and Amoco had to wait in line. This is from the Chicago Tribune, June of 1992, quote, Mega Oil somehow managed to dart into the confusion of Baku, the Azeri capital, and pluck the rights to reactivate old, broken, and clogged wells. The company started work a month ago and is already pumping oil to the astonishment of Western diplomats and competitors. The company is now busy 20 miles outside Baku, cleaning sand out of old, clogged wells and putting them back into service. Last month, the company flew in two American-made drilling rigs and crews to run them. Next month, it plans to bring in more. Look at all these big companies. They've been here for two years and they haven't done a thing, said Gary Best, president of Mega Oil. We're here a few months and we're already doing something. You can't argue with our success. But you can't find the secret of it either. Best said he has a contract with the Azeri government to revive oil wells in two fields, but he declined to reveal its terms. The secrecy has raised eyebrows among diplomats and other oil companies in Baku, who wonder privately whether payoffs might have been made. So to create the infrastructure necessary to extract all of this oil, Best approached this Texas-based Delaware-registered firm called Ponder Industries. Um, very shady firm. You could go down a rabbit hole with them quite easily. I recommend you do. Why not? Uh, they believed Gary Best claims of strong connections to the government in Baku, and they agreed to supply equipment and manpower to drill for oil and even to pay Mega a kind of operating fee for working those leases. It's all very complicated and tangled. Uh, Best assured Ponder that Mega had a contract with Sokar, which uh, is the Azerbaijani state oil company. But what he sent Ponder was this Russian language document that they didn't even bother to get translated before they signed it. Um, and then Mega would eventually and inexplicably, they would claim to never have made a penny from Azeri oil. But it seems pretty clear that Mega wasn't really in Azerbaijan for that reason anyway, or at least oil was not the primary reason. The available evidence, I think, would seem to suggest that it was in fact a front for a combined money laundering and intelligence operation. This is from Stu Webb, quote, Saudi European director Geith Ferroin, former head of Saudi intelligence, also acted as a registered agent for numerous Bush-controlled corporations for Bush interests in the Middle East. These involve Bahrain oil interests controlled by Richard Seacard's Mega Oil. These would then get sold back to Harkin Energy. Of course, most of them were worthless. Now, something else that bears a closer look here is the arrival of Mujahideen fighters in Azerbaijan 
as the Nagorno-Karabakh war escalated, there are competing estimates of just how many there were in the region at the time. At the lower end, some people say it was about five or 600. The highest end, you can get up around the 4,000 mark. Mega oil arrived in Azerbaijan. While Ayaz Mutalibov was in power. And Mutalibov, as we've said, was seen as this weak and ineffectual leader. And his handling of the war with Armenia was not well received domestically or in his government or in the military. You know, it was a joke to everybody. Now, there were spooks crawling all over Baku during this period, as we've said. And Mutalibov seemed to know that mega oil was just the front, you know, probably for the CIA. Thus, he asked them for help recruiting muscle for the war. Seacard uh, and Edahol, it must be said here, they've always maintained that they had left Baku by early 1992, which means that it could only have been Gary Best, really, um, as the, the mega operative in charge of fulfilling Mutalibov's request. And as ever, American operators arming and training Mujahideen fighters fulfilled multiple objectives. So using Mega's extensive international contacts, the firm is said to have recruited as many as 2,000 fighters from Afghanistan to wear Azeri military uniforms and head to Nagorno-Karabakh to fight the Armenians. And sure enough, by about mid-92, June, July, Armenian troops started to find dead soldiers with Afghan passports and books and training manuals written in Pashto. Other Mujahideen recruits um, spread out across the region from Azerbaijan, and they began to recruit fighters of their own from Turkey, Chechnya, and Iran. Uh, we will loop back to Turkey soon. Um, now, the Mujahideen were put on retainers of between $700 and $1,000 a month. The pilots were paid as much as $5,000. And Gary Best also recruited American mercenaries who were paid much more than the Afghans and were unsurprisingly stone-cold fucking psychopaths. And the equipment that Mega supplied to the Afghan mercs, the Mujahideen, it was shit. It was shoddy, uh, cheap guns that just malfunctioned all the time, misfired, Kevlar that didn't work very well. Um, blank rounds were sometimes handed out to the Afghan Mujahideen instead of live ammo because it said the mega operatives and these American mercs had basically stolen so much of the money that their backers in the States and the Azeri government had given them to finance this operation. And then... In March of 1992, the Azerbaijan Popular Front, this political party, it launched an armed coup against Mutalibov, and it was led by Abulfas El-Chibi, who then took over as president of Azerbaijan. El-Chibi was a pan-Turkist, and it was on his suggestion 
that the Turkish Grey Wolves were brought in to help train and lead these uh, Mujahideen squads. And they also set up this Azerbaijani chapter of the organization as well, of the Grey Wolves. So there were around 200 of these guys in Azerbaijan by the end of 1992. If uh, any listeners are unfamiliar with what the Grey Wolves are, they're a Turkish ultra-nationalist group, the kind of a um, a an arm of Gladio, you know, of Turkey's Gladio program, Konto Gorilla. So the head of the Azerbaijan Grey Wolves was Iskander Hamidov, and he created the National Democratic Party to serve as a kind of front for the group. Then Elshibi appointed him as Minister of the Interior. And Hamidov's deputy, Rovshan Javadov, with the blessing of the government, then traveled to Afghanistan and made contact with our old friend, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was, of course, the heroin warlord and CIA asset. And what do you know? Azerbaijan then becomes a crucial access point for opium flowing out of Afghanistan and into Turkey, where it can be refined into heroin. Uh, and then the Azerbaijan mafia, they use the profits from heroin trafficking to finance guerrilla operations against Armenia in collaboration with the Azeri military and the Afghan Mujahideen who were being trained by uh, these probable CIA operators connected to mega oil. And of course, then Al-Qaeda subsequently rolls into Azerbaijan and establishes this uh, NGO in Baku. And it's headed by this guy called Ibrahim Eldaros, who created these business links with the Azerbaijan and Chechen mafias, and then kept a close eye on operatives in Central and Western Europe from his vantage point in Azerbaijan. And he was later said to be under very strict instructions from management not to attack the American embassy in Baku or its staff or any Western officials, so as not to spoil what was referred to as a, quote, special understanding between the Mujahideen, the Al-Shibi government, local organized crime groups, and those Western officials. Because there was a fortune to be made here. Black gold. Texas tea, you know. So let's summarize. We have Mega acting as a front for the CIA, probably, and what remained of the, the Oliver North section of the Enterprise Syndicate. And they are just a small part of the flood of Western spooks and oil exec- <clears throat> executives arriving in Baku, bearing kickbacks for drilling contracts, you know, for oil drilling contracts. You got the presence of the Grey Wolves, which suggests to me some degree of NATO involvement in these operations. I mean, come on. It's pretty obvious anyway, but, and then at the very least, the Grey Wolves also suggests um, <clears throat> Turkish intelligence and the Turkish mafia has been present there as well. And if you talk in Turkish intelligence, MIT and Turkish mafia, distinction without a difference, really, especially at this point in time. And then as a result of the recruitment scheme devised by operatives like Gary Best and Azeri officials collaborating with CIA assets like Hekmatia, we then see Al-Qaeda agents establishing a foothold in the country. And inevitably, we also have a shitload of heroin, which enabled organized crime to consolidate its position. And oh yeah, and we've got the Chechen Mafia, because why not at this point? So essentially, uh, right there, 
in Azerbaijan between the late 80s and the early 90s. We can kind of see them testing and tweaking the, the Central Asian arm of Gladio B in real time. To unlock the rest of this episode, please head over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end. Good, 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 good